Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our special guest is Eric White, who is a customer insight consultant. And today we're going to be talking about jobs to be done, framework, and everything related to that. Hi, Eric. Hey, Jane. Good morning. Good, e- uh, thanks good evening. Thanks for joining us today, yeah, right? Thanks. It's, uh, it's, it's various times so all over the globe, as we yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, nice to chat with you. Absolutely. So um, we are trying this one again. We are going to jump right into a very quick Blitz style interview to learn more about yourself. And then we'll dive into the topic itself. Are you ready? For I am quick? ready. Let's do it. <laughs> for a quick one? Great. So question number one, what do you do for a living? So I help people um, build and market um, their products and services through um, using the jobs to be done lens of understanding customer motivation. So I help people um, interact with, you know, have interviews and, and learn what their, what their customers are wanting and why they're buying from um, you know, the products and services that my consultants use, and then we spin that into um, product management type work or product marketing type work or service design or things of that nature. That sounds spectacular. How did you get to this position? So I have a long background in doing enterprise software development. I actually came up, you know, came out of college as a programmer. And as I, um, you know, did that for a few years, I, I started to veer more and more towards the business side of development. And so I would, I would really describe my role over the course of time as turning into more of a technical or business consultant, um, helping my customers um, solve their painful problems using technology. And so um, when I would do that in the enterprise space, I would have to figure out how to um, you know, build products and build solutions that pleased the executives who were going to pay for the software, um, the users who are going to have to use the software and the managers who manage the users. And so um, there was this... There's a lot of people to please. <laughs> and yeah, right. And, and everyone's very differently motivated and, and wants different things out of every, um, you know, every solution. And so um, what, I, what I really enjoyed doing was that process of getting everyone, um, if not on the same page, at least figuring out ways to align everyone's motivation so they all got what they wanted. And so very that was important. a very natural, so because of, you know, understanding people's motivations, um, jobs to be done is very much about customer motivation. And so it just made a natural um, step, at least for me to, um, you know, narrow the focus of the services that I offered so that I was focused on just specifically customer insight and motivation. And we all know that niching down is never hurts, really. So you got your niche with jobs to be done. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, I ended up um, you know niching around a um, I guess a, a process or or a way of doing things because there are not very many people doing it, and so I've gotten away from you know niching around a vertical and instead of you know I'm niching around a, a process which is working okay for now. Sounds great. What does your day look like? So um, does how many people have you asked this question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing everyone answers the same way. They they all look different. Um, so today's not totally uncommon. So after I get to uh, have this conversation with you, I will um, go on a sales call and talk to a potential client who's got some marketing challenges. Um, I'll probably spend my afternoon. I'm I'm actually um, working as a contributing author and, and editor for um, a jobs a book about jobs to be done by a friend of mine named Alan Clement. So I'll spend the afternoon um, working on 
um, some copy for that. Um, tomorrow do you I will. Have, do you have a URL for that book yet? No, no. Um, we're we're. Oh, hoping, you should. <laughs> I know. That's marketing one one. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I shouldn't. I shouldn't even be talking about it, but. Um, oh. <laughs> um, no, 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 no. I just, I was just joking because I, you know, we're not, we don't have, we don't have, or he doesn't have anything set up. It's really his book and he's uh, been kind enough to let me come along and, and, uh, make some contributions, but it'll hopefully be coming out, um, sometime in, uh, or late August, early September. Very exciting. Um, what do you enjoy the most and the least about your work? So the, the thing I like most about it is, you know, as, as we talk, to job, talk about jobs we've done more in our conversation, um, this, this topic will come up. But I, I really enjoy the – it's almost mind-blowing sometimes to look at um, the situations that cause people to buy things. And so I really enjoy um, going in, learning things about, um, you know, my, the, the customers of my clients – and um, presenting that information back in a way that's very surprising to people. And so a lot of times, you know, my, my clients are, they're, they're things that people love about their products that my clients never understood, or there are anxieties that people have about my clients' products that um, they also didn't know about. And so I really enjoy the, um, um, the, the notion of finding a new perspective um, on the purchase process and presenting that to people and, and letting them take that information and, and change how they do business. That's, that's really fun for me. Um, the part I like about at least is right now, honestly, it's, it's kind of a big transition for me. So, you know, my background being in technology, I, I knew how to, um, sell and deliver technology services because I've been doing it for a really long time. And so this is a, this is a new thing. And it's fun to learn new things, and it's it's um, um, you know it's it's exciting, and I'm, I'm meeting a lot of interesting people. But you know, at this point, sometimes the transitions can be um, transitions can be a little scary or painful. And so, at this particular moment in time, probably just making the transition is the thing I like least. Which that's a good problem to have because um, <laughs> I think um, that's not I don't I don't I don't dislike that at all. I think someone said that as you become successful, you just have a different type of problems. And I guess that's one of the not very bad problems that you have with transitioning to different areas, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and what's your next big thing, Eric? The next big thing, um, that, is a, that is a good question. I, 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 guess, I guess the book that, um, that you know, Alan has coming out, I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, there's not a lot of, if people hear this podcast and they're interested in learning more about jobs to be done, there's not a lot of, um, good information on the internet about it. So, you know, there's some podcasts that you can find and some different people that are talking about, it, but there's not a lot of, um, good organized, um, material to, to really explain what it is and, and how you, um, how you discover what a job to be done is and, and how you then apply it to your business. And so I'm really excited to have a chance to be associated with this book that's, um, that's coming out because I think it's going to be very helpful. You think it's going to have the potential of like uh, all inclusive manual on the topic? Um, I don't, so, so the way that what's the angle, yeah. So what's yeah, the angle? Tell us more. The angle is really about innovation and how to use um, jobs to be done insight. So really the idea is, uh, you know, rather than looking at customers as consumers of a product, um, it's really looking at customers as people who are trying to make progress in their lives. And so when you make it your ambition to help people make progress in their lives, it's really almost like taking your product and turning it into a service. 
And so, you know, really understanding, you know, what's the struggle that's causing someone to be interested in your product? Um, what's the story behind how they got to where they are? And how do they see their lives as being better once they, once they start to, when, you know, once they buy and use the, the product? And so, um, as innovators, um, that, that can be really helpful because I think, you know, the, um, you know, the businesses that are already out there, the companies already providing a service can get very lost in, um, in how they do things and how they solve problems rather than trying to, you know, come up with completely different ways of, of, um, you know, better, faster, cheaper ways of helping people make progress. And so the angle of the book is really how, you know, how someone can be an innovator. So for example, we talk about, I think he uses the example of lawn service. And so if you're a, a company that, um, provides lawn service to people, or maybe I can give an even better example. So we've been, we've been doing a little bit of research in the healthy eating space. And so when we, mm-hmm. when we think about healthy eating, and this is just a, this is just simply an academic example. I haven't done that much work on it, but I think maybe it frames what it is that we're looking at. If, if you are interested in helping people eat healthy, that's a very broad way of describing something and eating healthy might mean very different things to very different people. So, you know, some people that we talk to eating healthy looks like having um, light beer with your taco salad. Um, for other people, healthy eating <laughs> means, you know, the, the outcome means, you know, fitting into a wedding dress or looking good for a family photo. Um, we also talked to some people who um, were competing in the Ironman triathlon. And for them, healthy eating meant balancing their sodium intake and their caloric intake with their liquid intake. And so we started looking at, you know, situations that um, Ironman triathletes, um, you know, were, were trying to eat healthy. And so, as they transition from the swimming stage of the Ironman into the biking stage of the Ironman, um, you know, they were, they were having to prepare for, you know, being on a bike for 65 miles. And so some people would, you know, they would have different um, tools that they would, that they would grab. And so, you know, as, as people think about, you know, creating food products, they would think about, you know, how can you create things that are convenient that people can, you know, tape to their bike or, or have access while they're on a bicycle with no, you know, with no bag or anything like that to store their food. But rather than trying to think maybe about how to improve the product, um, you know, making it, I don't know, taste better or, um, you know, more conveniently attached to the bicycle, you know, a, a real innovator would say, well, what really what someone's trying to do is they're trying to get 110 calories of carbohydrates every 45 minutes so that they don't fall off the bike while they're riding. In which case, maybe wow. you can think about, you know, <laughs> inventing, I don't know, some sort of a time release capsule that the person can just swallow. And then, so I guess that's what I mean. So it's really understanding, you know, what the triathlon, what the triathlete really wants is they want that, you know, they want that caloric intake to happen at certain intervals. And there are lots and lots and lots of different ways that you can help them do that. And so the question that the innovator should answer is, you know, how can I help people make that progress in their lives, you know, better, cheaper, faster? And so I'm sorry, that's that was absolutely a, magic. Yeah, <laughs> that was a really long answer. But that's, that's really what the uh, that's really what the, the book is, is about, and how we're trying to frame it and, and help people, um, you know, create more innovative products. Yes, it's amazing how research and customer insight can affect product design in such manner. It's not about nuances of a certain product about it's about whole approach and thinking outside the box right there. Yeah, yep. Yep, I agree. I agree. And you would Great. you would know so, more. Mm-hmm. You would know more. So yeah, does that does that resonate with you? Does that is that kind of how you think about things? Oh, absolutely. And I think the problems like as a UX designer, when people come to me with different difficult problems, most often solutions lie like 
in the think out of the box area, rethinking certain aspects other than trying to fit something in another menu. You know, it's always more exciting than just minor details or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. The, uh, yeah. Right. So let's dive in into jobs to be done free work. And since some of our listeners might not know, we're going to break it down from the very beginning. Let's describe uh, the theory behind it, like the basic components, and then dive into practice, right? Uh, so what is jobs to be done, when it appeared, and how you came to adopting it? So jobs to be done actually has a really long history um, that I would that I would love to talk about, but that might be a little bit dull and, and off topic. But <laughs> I would say that it really came out of the um, the lean movement. And so... Um, you know, the lean movement, which was really oriented around understanding exactly what demand is for a product and then building only to satisfy um, demand. So you don't over-engineer and add a lot of features that aren't necessary. And also so that you understand, you know, quantitatively what demand is. So, you know, how much of the product are we going to need to sell so that you're not, um, you know, manufacturing too much stuff and, and leaving things in warehouses. So it very much comes from the mentality of trying to um, describe what demand is going to be for a product or a service. You're essentially saying that we're talking about warehouses too. I thought lean goes back to like software world, but now we are talking about physical products too. That's really exciting. That's right. Yeah, lean. Yeah, lean. So lean's background is actually as a manufacturing process, and then it's only been in the last. I don't. I don't. I'm not sure when. I think Eric Reese was the, at least the one that introduced me to the idea of. Um, lean as it applies to software. And I, I maybe came across that seven or eight years ago. But yeah, Lean actually has a, an incredible history. Um, yeah, back at, you know, going all the way back out of physical products. That's amazing. Thanks for this insight. <laughs> Need to do some more research. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, well, you wouldn't know. I mean, <laughs> yes. And please go ahead with your story. Yeah, so that's, that's sort of the background of it. Um, and then out of that, there was a gentleman by the name of Bob Mesta. Um, who was doing a lot of work in the Detroit car manufacturing space. And so he was learning the lean process. You know, I think Toyota was using it. And as uh, Toyota did exceptionally well, a lot of American car manufacturers were starting to adopt the, the methodology as well. And so um, Bob started to develop this idea of, um, um, you know, he didn't at the time call it jobs to be done, but it was really, you know, try to, how do we understand what people are really trying to get out of a product? And the really famous story um, that you'll hear is sort of the, the groundbreaking jobs to be done story was around the milkshake. And um, Bob worked with um, Clay Christensen at um, Harvard Business School, and they were hired by a, um, a fast food chain. And the fast food chain wanted to figure out how they could sell more milkshakes. It was this asset that they had that, they felt like was was underutilized, and they wanted to figure out how to get people to buy more of it. And so, Bob went and started doing research. You know, um, ethno, what do they call it? Ethnographic research, where he would um, sit with the clipboard at the um, at the restaurant, and he would study people's behavior. And they found that there were a couple of restaurants that were selling a very high volume of milkshakes. And so they went and they started studying people there. And as people would go through, they were very surprised to find that people were buying a lot of milkshakes in the morning. And so they started talking to people about why were they buying milkshakes. And, um, you know, the, the business, as they had tried to sell more milkshakes, tried, you know, experimenting with different flavors, with marketing them differently, with um, to sell them in the morning, they would try to have, you know, fruit type flavors and things that seemed more breakfasty. 
But when um, Bob and his team were were starting to talk to people, they found that people were actually um, hiring the the milkshake to help them deal with boredom on their morning commute. And so people oh, would interesting. people would show up there. They would buy it. They would buy the milkshake. They would um, you know they wanted something. They had a long commute ahead of them. Um, they wanted something that was going to um, you know, they didn't want to get a bagel or something greasy because they were afraid of getting their clothing dirty. Um, they wanted something that they could hold in one hand, um, something that was going to take a little while to eat, but that would also fill them up um, so that they wouldn't be hungry again until lunch. And it, it had a lot more to do with boredom than it did with, um, you know, healthy eating. And so that's when, so they, they, started, they started talking about and using the language of, you know, what people were hiring the milkshake for. And so that's when um, they came up with the idea of, I think someone, you know, sort of casually remarked, you know, it's almost like they have a job that they're trying to get done. But, you know, it's really hard to make a person admit that they're buying it off boredom because that's not what they would say, actually, if, they, if you ask them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, any, and they might not like, even know. The, so at the core of your work lies the framework, how you extract this knowledge from people. So is there any theory behind that? Or shall we jump into the practical side of the process, how you do it? Well, I think, you know, what I what I really try to emphasize when I talk to people about jobs to be done is um, I, I hear a lot of times um, sort of conflating the the theory or, or the, the idea of the job itself with how we go about discovering what the job is. So what I try to do is I, I try to make it very simple. Um, and I really describe, you know, the job to be done is, um, um, you know, when someone buys a product, they have this, they, they, they're somehow involved in a struggle and they have this vision for how their life is going to be better once that struggle is resolved. And so that, that struggle and the vision for how things are going to be better is, is that's the job to be done. And so the job to be done is something that solely exists in the, you know, in the mind and, and life of the customer. And so, you know, the idea is really just to, again, you know, qualitatively and quantitatively explain what, what demand is for a product or service and how people, um, you know, see their life being better. So, so I think it's really important to, to frame it that way. But then um, from there, yeah, there's lots of different ways that you can find that out. And so, sure, we can, we can go right in and talk about the fun part, mm-hmm. which is, you know, how do you have conversations <laughs> with people to really learn what their jobs to be done are? Great. So just to sum it up, so the key of the method, the essence of it is to extract those uh, reasons and functions that need to be performed by the product. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there go specific methods, how you extract that from people, which we'll cover right now, right? Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. Yep. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, And like, Research comes up in every kind of framework that we discuss. You know, we just did the previous episode on conversion rate optimization. And my biggest discovery is that it's all based on research. Once again, UX is based on research. You know, product design in our case is based on research. So no wonder that these methods that we'll learn are going to be useful for many kinds of frameworks, not just this one about motivation. I'm quite sure. Oh. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. And I've, I've, I tell people um, often that I feel like, um, you know, having, having gone into jobs to be done, I mean, it's made me a better consultant. It's made me a better father and husband um, just because I'm, you know, some of these, some of these techniques that we'll talk about is really just designed to, you know, help, help understand people and and what they're really wanting. So yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. 
<laughs> so I saw your talk at uh, double your freelancing conference in Stockholm, and you had a pretty amazing format. So just to give our listeners an idea, uh, Eric put like he gave an introduction to the framework and then invited one of the guests, one of the attendees on stage, and then gave him like a 30 minute uh, interview. Uh, like almost interrogation or something about why he purchased a specific kind of uh, suitcase, which is pretty amazing. So we dived into all kind of, uh, you know, uh, details there and undercovered a lot of interesting uh, facts. So uh, could you walk us through your primary technique, how you do that? Yeah. Yep. So um, again, this is something I learned from, from Bob, um, but we, we call it the switch interview. And so what we're really interested in is, you know, one of the underlying principles of jobs to be done is that when someone buys a product, they're hiring it to do a job. And when they hire that thing to do the job, they're firing something else. And so what we want to uh-huh, look at uh-huh. is what were, the, what were the circumstances and the situations um, that, that led the person to making that decision? And one of the most important things that we do is we never, we don't, we don't use a, um, a focus group style. So in other words, we don't, we don't ask people you know, what might you have done if this and this and this were different? We, we asked them very specific questions about, you know, okay, you're, you know, you were in this situation, this was happening, and then you made this decision. Um, help me understand why, why you made that decision. So, so we're really focused on understanding the choices um, that people made and the trade-offs that they made when they bought a product. So, um, yeah, so the, the interview is the most, I'll say it's one of the most enjoyable professional things. In fact, if I could go back and, and edit when you say, you know, what do I enjoy the most? Probably the thing I enjoy the most is conducting these interviews. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I love that you use the word interrogation because the first time is I... Is that a correct word, I wonder? <laughs> I think it's... from a detective story or I, something. That's exa- <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I feel like. I almost, there are times I feel almost like a little bit like a child pretending to be a, a police detective, um, you know, trying to, trying to understand a, a situation that happened. And it sounds, it sounds negative and it sounds like people might, you know, people might resist wanting to be interrogated. But, um, part of what's fun about it is, you know, we, we so rarely spend time really understanding why we made the choices that we did that it's, it's very, it's very enjoyable and it's very satisfying for people to go back and, and look at these situations and, and be surprised about, about what they did, um, you know, I can maybe give you an example. One of well, that that would be a really long story, but yeah, it's it's definitely an interrogation style because we're focused on you know what happened and why did it happen, and it's also um, a little bit of an interrogation style because sometimes if if someone bought something six months ago, they don't remember a lot of the details, and so you have to ask them certain types of questions to put them back in the situation, and so you know, well, you know, I'll ask you know what what day did you buy the product? Where you know where were you? Who was, if you were in a store, who was in the store with you? What time of day was it? You know, what other things did you buy? Um, and you ask those tactile questions and there's something about, you know, when you think physically back to what was happening, it just, it, it makes the story come back to life. And so I don't know if we got into too much of that when we did the interview at, um, at Stockholm, but that's, that's how, we're, <laughs> that's how we generally start that is, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to understand, you know, what was, what was the situation that was going on on the day that you bought it? And because usually the purchase itself is a very exciting moment for someone. So that's a really, ex, you know, that's a great place to start. They're either dreading something or they're excited about something or something's going on. And, um, yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's usually a very vivid moment for them. So that's a great place to start. 
So just to clarify for our listeners, um, it's pretty, it's, it's super important that the interview takes place after the purchase right. moment happens or occurs because people tend to lie or not know about future events and they might promise you whatever in the world, but they do different things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've certainly done it. I don't, I don't know if you've ever, um, <laughs> you know, thought that you were going to do something, but then ended up doing something else. But yeah, that's a pretty common thing for us as humans. I do it all the time. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm quite sure a lot of people do the same. <laughs> yep. And, so go, oh, go ahead. So that makes a difference from, from the lean style interviews when you are uh, ask, uh, questioning potential customers about what they would buy, would they pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. I think this has much more solid ground and actual like practical value to it. So um, very exciting. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Now, when you say the lean style, are you talking about? I think there's a book by Cindy Alvarez called Lean Customer Development. Is that the is I that think, the book that uh, you're referring to? I think I'm referring to Lean Startup by. Okay. Um, yep. Uh, Mr. Reese? Uh, yes. And uh, the other one by Aish Mauria? Oh, no. oh okay. yeah. I don't yep. want to be... Uh, I forgot the name of it, but it's like pretty biblical uh, for, for the whole industry. Um, and the, the whole key point with it, that this sounds very easy. And we just talked about that uh, lately in Brighton with a few people who are doing product development, that it sounds super spectacularly easy to do like the lean product development. But when it comes to customer interviews, you're suddenly stuck. You're trying to do to, to fit them into the framework of 20-minute interviews, and it doesn't work. So it's like honey to my ears to hear that you're taking people for like an hour of uninterrupted time mm-hmm. to let them freely speak, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, and, that, and it's music because it, it feels to you like you're, you would get in, that would be information that would be useful to you, or what is it? Why is that, why is that honey for your ears? Um, I just I just enjoy the format very much. Uh-huh. I think the, the the fact that it's post purchase makes it more objective, and the, the fact that it's free form makes it more, uh, you know, it does make it more harder to transcribe and to like devour. But yet, it allows more space for potential takeaways. While if you follow a certain script, then you kind of was was a word yep. you kind of fit the per- make the person fit into your framework while you actually want to hear their insights not yours <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah i mean it's yeah I, I very much agree with that and um i think yeah just having you know having it be more of a conversation and um you know thinking of your job as the interviewee to just find energy and to explore it when you see it um but the, that can be really helpful. Now, you, you made a really good point about, you know, it can be hard to capture things. So a couple of things I do to help with that is, um, particularly if it's for a client, um, I will make sure that I have a second person there who knows how to do the interview um, mm-hmm. so that as we're having conversations, sometimes sometimes one person will pick up on something and they, they'll want to follow that thread of conversation and while that's happening, the other person is making sure to take comprehensive notes. And um, uh-huh. afterwards, you know, after the interview is completed, um, we always take you know thirty minutes to an hour to to debrief and to sort of talk through you know talk through those things and make sure we've got everything captured. So it's always great to have a second person on the interview if possible. And then the other thing I do is um, make sure that I record them because something mm-hmm. because you want to resist any temptation to. Um, overlay your biases on things that people said 
So it can be very. Which you will, which you yeah. will, right? Inevitably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. because part, and part of these, you know, you're like, you've got this like creative and imaginative um, part of your brain that is being, um, that's being very stimulated while you're having these conversations. And so it's very easy to take something that a person said and draw some conclusions from that. But, you know, if you're basing a very expensive product launch um, on the insights that you're getting from these interviews, you don't, you don't want those insights to be fictional. And so, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it, it can really be helpful to have that second person there as sort of accountability and to, um, you know, to rein you back in to make sure that you're, well, you're focused on, you know, truthful things that people said. Mm -hmm. Do you typically transcribe the interviews? So I don't, I don't have a typical process that I do. I've never transcribed an interview. Um, I do. Oh, not I, yourself. That would be tedious. <laughs> but I, that maybe. would be really good to have a service to do that. <laughs> Actually, I've, I've not thought of doing that. That would be, that would be very helpful. Um, what I've tended to do is record the interviews um, using my iPhone And then I will go back through and pull out um, really key statements. So there have been a lot of times that um, you know the person will say something, and I, I will I will sense you know this is a this is a, a really big revelation. And so sometimes if I'm doing the ideal project for me is if my client is going to if it's myself and someone from my client's team who's going on the interviews. Those are, those are the ideal situations, though. Sometimes, though, I get hired, and they want me just to go out and do the research and then um, come back to them with um, you know, either a couple of interviews to do a deep dive into or just simply some, you know, some documented insights. And so I find when that happens, it's, it's very hard for me to persuade people um, to, to see things differently because I really challenge how they, how they look at the purchase process. And so in order to make that process easier, I'll go through and pull out Um, audio snippets of things that people said so that they, they can actually hear the customer saying it in their voice. And then it be, that can, that can be very compelling. Um, I, I, I feel mm -hmm. silly that I never thought about transcribing it, but that's also a brilliant idea to have that type of material. Oh. We just, with the previous guest in the previous episode, Momoko about conversion rate optimization, she said that uh, transcribing it is number one piece of advice she would give to people because it instantly makes it searchable and decomposable and Well, she's a copywriter, so it's more important for her to pull it apart into separate phrases. But um, I can see how debriefing can be also very valuable. So I guess it should be a combination of all. But the big takeaway is to give yourself time to process it, not just make it put on, on the shelf after it's done, right? I think so. I think so. There, yeah, because there's, you know, that 30 to 60 minutes afterwards is a very stimulate. You're, you're very stimulated and you've got a great empathetic understanding of what the person's situation was. And so, yeah, the, the debrief, especially because the debrief is another conversation with the person that you've interviewed with, um, is, is a very, it's a very valuable part of the process. I think it's actually valid for any kind of conversation in life because I, I swear each time that I'm going to do like show notes for the podcast immediately afterwards, but most times I just have to run and then a couple of weeks later I'm trying to like recollect the key right. ideas from my notes, but it's totally, it would be so much easier if I just, you know, found another 20 minutes to, 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 to do this while it's all like hot and fresh in my memory. Yeah. And I, the think, conversation. I think part of that too is, you know, if someone was paying you, like, you know, if you were a hired podcast host you would probably do that just as a professional courtesy um you mm -hmm. know but when we do things for ourselves sometimes we can tend right. to um, be a little more casual 
Exactly. May I go a little bit off topic and ask you another question about the way you sell your services, actually. So I've heard a number of times, uh, especially from UX consultants, that the research phase is very hard to sell because it, it takes a lot of work. It's fairly expensive. And people kind of always imply that we're going to jump in and do something immediately while it takes like a month or two of barely researching stuff. And since you're selling research individually, are there any methods that people can use to upsell, you know, their clients to their to, to the good solid research phase? Well, this is a this is a good conversation for us to have because I'd, I'd like to hear um, from your side as well. But so what I what I found two things. The first is that um, because the research tends to be very conversational, um, and I I don't need. To, I mean, I'm doing I'm helping someone with a product launch right now, and I will do maybe twenty interviews. Um, now I'll, I'll do some other types of research too, and we can talk about about those a little bit later. But it doesn't tend to be like if you're if you're doing focus groups, those those are very very expensive. Um, they're very expensive. Mm-hmm. They're very um, difficult to schedule. Um, you know, assessing the information can take a long you know a long time. For you know if you're, if you're going to use you know jobs to be done thinking and and the switch interview style, it's really not. It does not need to be that expensive of a of a process. Um, so that's mm-hmm. one thing that helps, I think, is that it's, um, I think the information you get is very truthful and very helpful and very eye-opening. Um, it's also, you know, it's also something that can be done in not that much time. So that's one thing that, that helps with resistance. Um, the other thing is I tend to find that the people that hire me have a pretty painful problem. Um, you know, they've got a new product that they've spent, um, you know, in some cases millions of dollars um, developing and they want mm-hmm. a go to market plan that they can depend on and that, you know, they've got investors, um, they've got media that are watching, you know, they, they feel like the stakes are very high. And so, um, the amount of worry that they have, uh, far outstrips any, um, you know, any cost that, that I might be applying to, to my research. So that, mm-hmm. that's one thing that, that really helps is just making sure that, you know, the person's got a big enough problem that they want to solve. I can't, I, you know, I can't convince them um, that they do. They've got to. They've got to already feel that. So I'm, I'm sorry. That's mm-hmm. probably the worst advice that you've ever gotten on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, that means that you're actually basing your service off existing pains, not not inventing the reasons for them to hire you, which is actually like our favorite advice, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, have you done like uh, your own motivation style research and interrogation on the clients who hire you or something of that kind? That's why good, they do that? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, generally, um, it's, I, I feel like what I help people do is deal with, well, there, there are really two different reasons that someone hires me. So someone hires me because they've got a new product that they want to take to market and they, you know, they're, they're at some, and they want they want to reduce uncertainty, so they want to have some better sense of you know what it is that people want and how many people are going to buy it. What's the size of the market? Um, a lot of times they've gone through this process before, and traditional ways of looking at the market were unreliable, and so um, it's it, it excites something in them to think that there's a different process that um, that they could get some insights that you know frankly a lot of other companies have have used, and so. That's that's mm-hmm. one segment of customers. The other segment of customers is someone who's already got a product um, that is out on market, and it's either 
it's either stagnated or they're under a lot of pressure to grow. And so they're wanting someone to go hunting around and finding either how to market the product or, or improve it in a way that's going to um, help increase um, demand. Mm-hmm. And so, and then, um, oh, go ahead. yeah, do they, do they just go out searching for a customer insight consultant, which I don't think they know about, <laughs> or do they just happen to have your name in their network or in their Rolodex, let's say, if that's a, a good question. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, when you, when you asked me that question um, earlier about what I'm enjoying the least right now, it's that I don't feel like I have enough information to really understand, um, to, you know, to really be able to do this work on my own. So a lot of the, in fact, all of the work that I've gotten to this point has been, um, through, um, just direct sales. So I've just, mm-hmm. you know, I, I spend a lot of time just meeting with people and talking to them about what they've got, um, you know, going on in, in their own business. And, um, just, you know, since I'm one person, it's, it's been, um, you know, I have found enough, um, you know, enough sales that way. Um, so I have not, you know, I've not entered the phase of this service offering that I've really figured out, um, you know, how to create good marketing and, and understand exactly what I'm, what I'm competing against. Honestly, that's sort of part of where I am in my journey. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is very true for a lot of successful consultants because good referrals to do take you a very long way. And like most of us don't feel like we have that magic faucet or magic key for amazing client work to come in immediately, but it happens for some reason. And I think that's the same in your case, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so there, there are things about jobs to be done, you know, specifically, I think there's, there's this take on competition um, that can be very, um, that can be very interesting to people. And so sometimes there's a pain, but then sometimes there's also a, um, you know, people like to, um, how would I say this? People like to get a different perspective on what it is that they're selling. Or sometimes people are just curious and they, they want to learn um, a new way of doing things. So, you know, from time to time, I'll get a, a coaching engagement where, you know, simply someone just wants me to go and help them with a couple of interviews and, you know, so that they can start to, so that they can start to see it. But I brought up this, comp- this notion of competition and I was, you know, I'd be, I'd be interested to get your take and how, um, how it resonated with you. But, um, one of the examples I gave at the, um, the conference that you and I were at was I've got a client that sells pond fountains. And I don't know if your oh, audience knows what that yeah. is, but <laughs> I was about to ask you to reca- recap that briefly because it's very, uh, it's a good showcase how motivation can be hidden and intricate in very obvious cases. Yep. So just in a few sentences, uh, what was the case? So the case was, um, this company sells pond fountains. Um, basically it's a clean water solution. So if someone's got a pond on their property, they can buy one of this company's fountains and it'll move water around and, and make it clean. And so we started talking to, and, and prod me along if I'm going too slow. Um, but you know, we went out and we started, we started speaking with people who were buying their, their home product about what their experience was. And what we found is that the pattern of, you know, the patterns that we were seeing people talk about had a lot to do with their, um, their kids getting a little bit older and starting to spend less and less time at home and more and more time with their friends. And the parents um, would decide, you know, at some point in the winter, we don't want our kids spending time over at their friend's house. Like we want them bringing their, their, we want them bringing their friends here. And their, their, their real motivation was to, you know, have their house be the social center of um, the kids' universe. 
And so they started thinking about different solutions for doing that. Um, initially, they thought about maybe getting a basement renovation and putting in a, a, a pool table or a ping pong table, or they thought about getting a big TV with an Xbox um, attached to it, or you know, they started thinking about things like that, which you wouldn't traditionally think of as solutions that um, compete against the pond fountain. Uh, but the reality was that's that's exactly what they were competing against, and that was a very satisfying thing to to un, un, you know uncover. And sometimes when people hear you know different you know people are doing different things to get their their jobs done, um, that 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 really stimulates this whole new idea of you know I've got this whole set of competition out there that I had no idea about, and I find that can be something that also stimulates people to want to learn more and and um, work with me. Absolutely, and this this example it just like it's stuck in my memory now because it, it you wouldn't really think that a pond fountain would uh, compete with a plasma TV, but in fact it was. That's that's spectacular. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. For that job, so yeah. When you look at things from the customer's perspective, um, yeah, the competition just looks very different because they're they're trying to make progress in a certain way in their life, and they're just thinking about whatever solution they can get to do it. And then they start to make trade-offs. And so, you know, they love the idea of the plasma TV because they think about watching sports on it and, and all the other things they can do. But because they're wanting, um, you know, during the summertime for their home to be the, the, the social center of the universe, they didn't want the kids spending time inside playing video games. They wanted them outside being active, um, partially because they wanted their kids to do that and partially because they were worried about, you know, the parents of their, the parents of their children's friends um, being resistant to them coming over and spending time, you know, sitting in front of a TV. And so, you know, they start mm-hmm. to make these trade-offs based on what it is that they're really wanting to happen. And I, I, yeah, I could just go on and on. I just find that fascinating. <laughs> so I had a few questions back then, and one of them is still here, uh, which I want you to ask you. How do you incentivize people to spend this hour with you? Um, is that, do you offer rewards or what did you do uh, to incentivize these interviews? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. So I have, I have done a, a range of things. So my wife um, was thinking about starting, my wife's background is in psychology and she was thinking about starting a, um, a, a parent coaching business. And so we interviewed people that she knew and those people, because they were friends, were just willing to spend time with us just, you know, just out of, you know, I don't know, friendship and, and loyalty. Mm-hmm. Um, I or had a super loyal customers, for example, yeah, same yeah, way. Yep. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I had a, um, I did my first ever project that I did was with a, um, a, a guy who was a friend of mine and he was also a consultant and his clients were completely willing to spend an hour with me, um, without without any offer of an incentive and and I, w- I would add too these were people that were high power you know he he did executive level coaching and so i was meeting with you know ceos and cfos of very large companies and they were you know it was a little bit difficult to get on their schedule but um they had no resistance because they they liked my client and they wanted to to help him out we did end up paying those people i gave them 50 dollars amazon gift card afterwards um if you sell a product and you don't have a connection with your customer um, I've usually found that offering them a hundred dollar Amazon gift card is um, adequate. Usually, people will mm-hmm. um, people will do it for that. Um, sometimes, with if it's more of a of a B two B type product, I find that I have to pay them a little bit more. 
Um, so sometimes, you know, I've, I've paid people as much as 250 or $300, um, to do, to do these interviews. But, you know, usually, you know, $100 seems to be the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. That sounds very reasonable. So you don't really expect some magic to happen in that case. People don't really trade their time for nothing, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's just you know it's a it's a it's a gesture, and um, you know I would you know some sometimes I think as a researcher initially I had some resistance to doing that, thinking you know well if I'm paying people are they just going to be saying what I want to hear? But because you're focused on their story and their situation, there's nothing that you want to hear. You just want to hear their story, and so it's um, it's to me it's really just. Um, you know, it's, it's very safe and, and it, and it does not, um, it doesn't put your research in any sort of risk of bias. Mm -hmm. Another question. I think people can be not very open about sharing their true motivations. Uh, like they want to look nicer in other people's eyes. Do you have any specific techniques, how to make people open up and tell the truth? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. So I, I can definitely say that with every, there, there are always going to be interviews that you just kind of have to throw out there. They're just not going to be very good. Um, really? Really? Oh yeah. Yep. Um, I, <laughs> I had one, one time I was, um, it was for the client I was just telling you about who did executive coaching and I interviewed, um, a couple of his customers and I could tell there was, um, there was just a wall up and mm -hmm. they were, they were just not really willing to get into um, the situation. And, and sometimes you just, you know, sometimes you just have people that are going to be like that. But for the most part, I mean, I would say that's less than 10% um, of the people that I've interviewed. Have I had that problem with, but you know, you've, you just got to be prepared for that. Um, you're, you're always going to have people that are just not, you're just not going to be able to break through with, that I, I will say too, um, that can be sometimes uh, helped by having the second person, because as people, there are always going to be people that we're going to connect more naturally with and not connect very naturally with. But usually, if you have play. a what's that? Good cop, bad cop. Yeah. Uh, play. <laughs> oh, you yeah. I mean that it's funny. Good cop, bad cop. Yeah, just <laughs> just very naturally happens. <laughs> but having that second person there, you know, usually one of you will connect. Um, better with the other and, and can pull and can pull things out. And, and also because I think, I think people originally th will initially be suspicious that you're just trying to get pull quotes for a website or, or testimonials. But once you, once you make it clear that you're just trying to get um, their sense of, of a story, um, they usually are very open. Um, I was, you know, I mentioned the name Bob Mesta, the, the gentleman who created jobs to be done. He and his partner, um, a guy by the name of Chris Speck, I've, I was speaking with them about this very question one time, and they were saying that they had a project one time where they were um, doing research around a um, um, like a, a shower gel that was marketed mm -hmm. towards women, and so they were interviewing women about about you know why they bought, and they were very concerned that you know it was going to be too in, you know too intimate of a conversation, and that there would be a lot of resistance, but they were able to you know. Of course, they're professionals and they're not being sleazy about it. Um, but you know, the, even in even in a situation like that, they were able to you know to work through and have very productive conversations. So, it's there's there's a change. I guess my my response to that question is always that you know there, you're going to have some interviews that aren't going to go very well. But um, 
you know, as long as you, as long as you stick to what it is that you're trying to find out, most of them are going to go surprisingly well. That sounds like solid piece of advice. As my friend sent a save once, uh, there was no connection offered to be made or something like that. <laughs> Sometimes <Yeah>. it's just that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up today's episode, um, is there any common pitfall that you see people, you know, falling into common mistakes or good practices as well uh, when it comes to job to be done uh, interviews? So as far as the interviews themselves go, I don't see a lot of a lot of common mistakes. Um, <clears throat> I think once and, and I'll give you a link at the end of the show where. Um, I've kind of got a, a getting started guide um, that I'd be happy to share with. Um, yes, with, uh, I've had to look at it. It's really good. <laughs> good. Um, so I'll, I'll share that. But um, the pitfalls that I find tend to be less in the interviews. Those just take a little bit of practice. Um, you know, you 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 do a few of them and you start to understand what it is that you're going for. And you know, most professionals do do just fine with that. Where the where the real risk comes in is when you're analyzing the information. And it can be very difficult for if you are doing interviews with your own customers, um, it's very hard to separate yourself uh, from the customer. And so what I mean by that is um, one of the big points of, of doing this is so that you are able to use customer's language to describe your product and to understand mm-hmm. what they're really wanting. And the biggest temptation is falling back into the trap of using your language to describe um, the situation. So first, so the customer uh, already has a template to talk around. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, which is dangerous. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. And so, I, I, oh, I'm, I'm trying to think if I can use this example. There was um, there was a friend of mine who did some some work with a um, a company that sell. I'll just say they sell music online, and we were looking at the the end product of of their analysis and. They would use, you know, they would use language like illegal music, illegally downloading music, and for me, that was a real key that I I knew that there was no customer inter- there was like I knew they didn't <laughs> interview any customer who ever talked about illegal music. That was, you know, that was language that they used to describe um, customer situations, and so the the number one biggest I think risk of this not being effective is slipping back into the the habits and patterns of using your language to describe things and not um, not taking the customer's perspective on it. Absolutely. I can also see easily see a situation where founder would do these interviews and be really um, biased in terms of their his own their own product vision and guiding the interview by that, not by customer insight. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean that's I'm I love that you say that because that's exactly what, you know, one of the risks that I tell people when they're thinking of hiring me is, you know, you can do this yourself. This is not, you know, I have not come across some, you know, this isn't teaching someone a new programming language. It's very difficult to understand. I mean, this is this is very very straightforward. This is just simple human interaction, but um the value that, you know, I think I and that and that your audience um, can really bring if they by using this technique is it's really valuable to have a an, an objective outside party looking at the situation. So you know your audience as user experience people I know are are expert at really understanding what it is that people want and there can be a huge value to being that objective third party and that that shouldn't be underestimated. 
Mm-hmm. I think, for example, in the UX, since you mentioned that, uh, it's it's really important to to use a combination of various research and one definitely being jobs to be done. I think it's actually more primary and, uh, you know, uh, important to the product development because we UX people can put together a product based on, you know, functional specs, but we need to know what people want to do with this product. That's like the key, what you want to get from research. And I see that totally being implemented in your framework. I know, I know you brought me on to interview me, but I'm curious if you could talk just a little bit about when you say, um, what was the term you <laughs> used? Like what people want to do with the product? Mm, yeah. So, I mean, Say this one again. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm trying to what think, do you mean? Oh, you just said I wish I, I wish I had it recorded. And I could go back, but you were just saying, you know, part of the job of the UX um, consultant is to understand what it is that people are really wanting to do. I think with the product. Exactly. Exactly. So I describe in my own framework, which is the UI audit. I describe uh, product strategy as a combination of the audience, their goals, tasks, and objects or items they do that with so uh, goals and tasks do very much align with jobs to be done framework and Mm -hmm. i think the interviews can be used to source this information to further feed the product strategy gotcha yeah uh, there's a ton of other ways to talk about that but that's the words i use for for my clients (laughs) yeah yeah that's perfect Great. So uh, where can people find you online and learn more about your awesome jobs to be done framework? <laughs> so my, um, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I, I talk to people all the time about jobs to be done on Twitter. So you can find me there at, um, at Eric M. White. Um, also, I have a website, um, which is thinkmotile, T-H-I-N-K-M-O-T-I-L-E.com. I'm super curious what it means. Please specify. <laughs> Motile. So I, yes. when I, when I first started my business, someone, um, um, I was doing iOS development when I first started the business. And so I had someone who does branding that, um, he needed a, he needed an app done and I needed branding. And so, so we swapped. And so he came up with this name, uh, Motile, and it has to do with, um, I think he described it as, um, muscular thought it's a it's a it's a i think it's a psychological term and it has to do with you know strategically moving forward um yeah moving forward strategically is kind of the way that that i think about it so that's uh-huh. uh that's <laughs> <laughs> because it does sound very professional, something between, you know, uh, agile, volatile, uh, maybe um, moving forward, exactly, because that's where the motion part comes in. <laughs> but yeah, it's, not, it's not in the common vocabulary of, of mine, at least, for <laughs> No, sure. it's, it's certainly not. No, it's certainly not. And I'm, 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 I'm encouraged to hear you say that. Most of my uh, friends give me a pretty hard time for the name, so... I'm going, to tell him, I'm going to tell him that someone just said Don't something nice. Don't mean to, to make you suffer anymore because of that. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks. And, and so I'll, I'll set up a link, um, thinkmotil.com um, slash Jane, and I'll put, um, I'll put some resources up there, you know, a, sort of a getting started guide um, on, on you know, how to think about jobs to be done and how to do the interviews. And um, depending on when you publish it, maybe we'll even have the book ready and, and they can uh, download, it from, download it from there. We'll see. That sounds great. I'll put that into the show notes, definitely. Well, thank you, Eric, for joining us today. This was very, very, very interesting and definitely very useful. Good. It's <laughs> so, always always nice to uh, chat with you, Jane. Uh, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye.